Every leader has a strategy. Executing on that strategy is the challenge. If you want to learn how to effectively achieve what you've set out to accomplish, then this show is for you. Gain keen insights and listen in as leaders share their stories and challenges. Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation welcome you to Leader Dialogue Radio. Hello, everyone. I'm Duffy Dixon. Welcome to Leader Dialogue, brought to you by Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation. Joining me is Ben Sawyer, the Chief Executive Officer of Soar Vision Group. Ben has more than 30 years of executive leadership experience. He launched Soar to help align people with purpose and to achieve exceptional results. Also joining us is Lisa Council. She is the Chief Commercial Officer. She comes to SOAR with more than two decades of clinical leadership and clinical informatics experience. She spent 19 years prior to this at the McKesson Corporation. We have a very special guest with us today. It is Dr. David Gifford. He is the Senior Vice President, Quality and Regulatory Affairs with the American Healthcare Association. And Ben, tell us a little bit more about Dr. Gifford. He has quite the quite the resume. Yeah, so Dr. Gifford, we're so delighted to have you on. Uh, for listeners, Dr. Gifford is a primary care physician and gerontologist, uh, got his medical uh, education at Case Western Reserve, and then finished his primary care residency and geriatric residency at UCLA. He was also a Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholar and received his master's in public health in epidemiology from UCLA at that time. Prior to coming to the American Healthcare Association, he was the director of the Rhode Island Department of Health and has had uh, many uh, prestigious uh, appointments uh, within the state and federal level and is also quite fluent with health information technology. So, oh, and one last thing is he is on the board of directors of the Baldrige Foundation. Oh, okay. As if that other stuff wasn't enough. Right, David. exactly. So, David, welcome. It's it's just a pleasure to have you uh, on the show today. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. David, can you tell us, uh, with the American Healthcare Association, Ben had some pretty amazing numbers as far as how many organizations you oversee. This We're talking about care for older citizens how many how many facilities does that cover so we represent uh, close to about 14,000 facilities across the country about 10,000 of the 15,000 nursing centers and about four or five thousand of the 20,000 assisted living uh, in the country wow and that that represents just for the listeners how many Americans that are being treated in those facilities on an annual basis do you think Oh, uh, well over a million people uh, on any given day, and uh, probably close to three or four million throughout the course of the year who are, you know, coming and uh, getting rehab and then going home or staying there because they, you know, they can't make it home. Yeah. David, let's kick this off for the listeners by helping them understand what the American Healthcare Association is and your role within that. And when you get in your role, if you don't mind sharing with them um, your alliance with the Baldridge uh, Performance Excellence Program and how you adjudicate that yourself within the association, I think that would be really interesting for the viewers. Yeah, so we're, you know, we're in one sense a very traditional Washington-based trade association representing members before Congress and federal agencies. But uh, and then, you know, doing various things. But we also, uh, about uh, 10 years ago, started up a effort to really assist our members improving quality. And one of the cornerstones of that is that uh, we are uh, run and administer a uh, Baldridge program. So we're actually one of the affiliated programs 
just like there are many state-based programs, uh, there are some what are called affiliated programs, and we are probably the largest affiliated program. We have about twelve to 1,300 applications to all our Baldridge program a year, and we use the same Baldridge criteria and use the same national Baldridge examiners to help review um, all our applicants and award recipients. And as I understand it, you have a three-tiered program, bronze, silver, gold. Is that correct? Yeah, as many states do. We have a three, uh, try to get people in because, you know, to get to the highest level, it's it's a lot of work and it takes some time and it can be discouraging. And so right. uh, we've sort of broken it into sort of a more stepwise process, uh, bronze sort of introductory level, which is a subset of the criteria, silver, which is a full criteria, but not having to achieve the same level of implementation and complexity. And then the gold level is the equivalent, and that's the same as winning a state award and um, actually makes them eligible to apply for the national award. And two years ago, we had a facility um, out in Cal- in um, Idaho uh, receive the national award for this as well. Right, that was beat a, out all the hospitals. I think yeah. that was Kindred Health, right? Yeah, Kindred Health in Kellogg, uh, Idaho. Yeah, so. wonderful to see. And you know, people often think uh, you know we don't have the same resources or requires the resources that hospitals or large organizations can do this. But I think the Baldridge framework not only is applicable in all healthcare settings and non-healthcare settings, um, but smaller uh, organizations can do it just as well as a large organization. Right. So for the listeners, David, we encourage them to follow along on our Leader Dialogue uh, um, website. So it's www.leaderdialogue. Dialogue is spelled D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E dot com. And on the homepage, they will find the organizational hierarchy of needs, which is essentially a representation or visualization of the Baldridge. So it's a little bit easier to understand. And in the Baldridge Performance Excellence Framework, there are seven categories. Uh, The first one is leadership. The second one is strategy. The third one is customers. The fourth one is what's called measurement analysis and knowledge management. We refer to it as MACM for short. Um, And then uh, category five is workforce. Category six is operations. And category seven is the biggest part of the representation of scoring i think it's about 45 percent of the total score and that is results it crosses all the other categories and the interesting thing about the baldridge as you alluded to david is it is very comprehensive and and requires integrated top performance across everything you do not just isolated areas of performance correct absolutely i think one of the things that we've found amongst uh, our members who are pursuing the program, that what distinguishes those who receive the award, and I think uh, being on the Baldridge board and seeing the national uh, recipients in all sectors, what tends to distinguish the those who receive it from those who don't is that the applicants actually, it, it's their mindset. Um, right. Those who are pursuing this to win the award tend not to get it because yeah. It's about really implementing changes deep in the organization and not doing something for some outside recognition. Right. Uh, it's about being a better organization. And then I'd say similarly, it's uh, understanding the intent and purpose behind each of those categories and then really making sure they are baked into your organizational structure in a way that helps achieve your mission. And so you often hear about people are mission-driven, 
you know, I often can talk to uh, individuals and ask them what they think of the organization they work for, how they're doing. And after talking to them, you can sort of get a sense what their mission is. And when it matches what's on paper, you know you have a good organization. When it doesn't match what's on paper, then you know you have some discourse. Often reflected by if I talk to a staff and I hear the third-person plural of they or them uh, when talking to sort of the workforce in an organization, you recognize that clearly they're not on this Baldrige journey uh, because there's a disconnect between management and the workforce. And in these Baldrige organizations, you just hear we and us over and over again. And I think those are the things that really distinguish the top performers. I mean, everyone is doing the same type of, you know, strategic planning, the same type of sort of measurement, uh, trying to bring the latest technology in. But I think it's that mindset that really distinguishes uh, those who are able to do that in a way that achieves the mission and better uh, outcomes for the populations they care for. You know, it's really interesting. We've talked on previous radio shows about the work of John Cotter out of Harvard, and he's done some really interesting assessment of what you're just talking about. And in one of his uh, books, and based on his research, he talked about how only 5% of employees uh, on average across companies understand how their job connects to the organization's strategy which is a scary number. And then he did a really interesting uh, little study to try to assess middle management's engagement. So what he did is he took six strategic planning documents of of companies and redacted the names, put them in a conference room, and then invited uh, middle managers that work for those companies to come in and find their company's strategic plan. That's all they had to do is just find it. And only 29% of them could find it, (laughs) which which advises you of the disconnect. So for the listeners, what Dr. Gifford is talking about is huge. It It is gigantic to be able to get to we and us. And everyone is connected with the why, the statement of purpose, and aligned on mission, vision, values. And everybody is hitting it on all cylinders. It's It is... A, a big undertaking and very, very powerful when it occurs. Yeah, I'm sure many of the listeners have heard the story of, you know, when Kennedy visited the Space Center and they're trying to put a man on the moon and ran into a uh, janitor there, um, you know, with a broom and cleaning up and asking what he what he does there. And he says, I'm helping put a man on the moon. Yes, um, that's You know, amazing. I think we were interviewing for an administrative assistant uh at American Healthcare Association a couple of years ago, and uh, one of the applicants came in, and we asked her why she wanted to work here, and she said, well, I, I uh, quit my job about a year ago and decided to take care of my dad at home who had dementia and really wanted you know, to take care of him because we didn't want to put him in a nursing home out there, and the family rallied around that. And he died a couple months ago, and I want to come and work for you guys because I want to figure out how to make nursing homes better. Wow. I was like, you're hired on the spot. <laughs> exactly. And she has turned out to be incredible administrative assistant and really gets it and really understands the role. And, and I couldn't – so I think having a workforce like that in an organization and in a Baldrige organization, you get the workforce like that. Right. And from a leadership standpoint, which is category one, the the challenge or opportunity is to help facilitate that kind of empowerment, right? Right. So often everyone talks about leadership, but I think distinguishing characteristic is, you know, people tend to get promoted into leadership positions because 
they can solve problems and they do a great job solving the problems. But by the time you get into leadership, you're not expected to solve the problems yourself. You're expected to figure out how to um, get your team and the people who work for you to solve the problems and how to coordinate that. And that's a different skill set. And often we don't recognize that transition of that skill set and uh, provide the right training and education as people move up in management and leadership um, to get there. And, and those who keep trying to solve it themselves, you just burn out. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, for the listeners, if you're on the homepage and you're looking at that organizational hierarchy of needs, the leadership effectiveness and essentially persistent curiosity permeates all of that organizational hierarchy of needs. And you'll you'll notice, uh, listeners, in the foundation of the organizational hierarchy of need is uh, workforce engagement. So what Dr. Gifford is talking about is those two are significantly related. Um, and essentially what happens is uh, leaders are articulating the mission, vision, values, but they recognize that while they have authority in their position, they share responsibility with the front line. And basically operations to a large extent is a daily experiment. Like, how's it going? What do we need to change? And so forth. And unless there's a really good synergy there between the leadership and the front line, uh, it's not particularly effective. Yeah, I I think one of the canary in the coal mine uh, metrics for any uh, business, whether it's healthcare or not, is uh, is your employee turnover rate and retention rate. Right. Um, you want a little bit, uh, and certainly, you know, going to Collins and everyone else, you want the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus. So, right. you know, you want, you want to make sure you're dealing with that. But certainly if you're having consistent and uh, turnover, you need to look towards the leadership because it's setting the tone and culture that's driving people away. You know, Dr. Gifford, you're the first person, I believe, that we've had on to talk about uh, geriatrics and post-acute mm. care and long-term care in nursing homes. And that leads me to ask you, in this arena, what are some of the things that are unique? As you're talking about employee turnover rate, it's a tough job. Being in a nursing home, I mean, you know, you have turnover of patients, number one. Number two, it's just, it, as in anything with healthcare, it is a 24-7. It can be very disappointing. Uh, you're dealing with family members at their worst. You know, they're just every, it, what are, what are, what is unique about nursing, nursing homes and, and care for the elderly that you face some of your, some of your top priorities or some of your top problems? Well, I think one of the challenges you, you articulated that is that you have individuals who are very difficult to care for, and it, it can be exhausting. Family members have tried as much as they can to usually keep people at home as long as they can. But it, you, there's no, no one can do that 24-7 at home. And that's why in the, in the skilled facility, they, you know, they work in shifts because you need to have uh, breaks out there and you need to have the right sort of support for that. I think the, the biggest challenge we face is sort of the, the complexity of the individuals there uh, balanced against the time and resources and expectations. Many individuals have spent all their assets down at home. And often one reason they leave their home to go is they've they don't have any assets to have the care at home. And so then they rely on Medicaid in the state. About two-thirds of everyone in a facility is on Medicaid because they just it's expensive to care for people at home or in a facility. Mm-hmm. 
And in many states, that Medicaid rates are inadequate to cover the staffing full resources. So people try the best they can, and they really struggle. And there's a fair amount of literature. Um, David Grabowski from Harvard has shown that relationship with staffing and quality is really tied to the state Medicaid rates. But no one ever really wants to talk about that aspect of it. And then I think the other frustration is that uh, we're a very regulated industry because when bad things happen in this country, we tend to want to write more regulations for it. And uh, those regulations sometimes actually uh, have the unintended effect of getting in the way of what's out there. You definitely need them out there, and there are definitely some bad actors out there in every sector, but you want to figure out how to balance those all together. I think those are some of the, the bigger challenges. And then generally family members feel terrible that they've put their family members in a facility. Um, And so when bad things go wrong, they look to take it out on someone. I'll tell you, the the aides I've worked with in the facility uh, was when I was in practice with a medical director and the aides I meet today, they're they're just saints. I mean, they they care for these individuals like they, their family members. You've heard some uh, horrifically terrible stories, I'm sure, during some of these disasters of things that happen in facilities. But what's not told is the countless thousands of positive stories where aides and nurses have left their families and and moved into the facility to care for the elderly and helped them evacuate and traveled with them to other buildings, uh, brought their families into the facility so that they could live there and the whole family cares for everyone in the sense of these emergencies. It's it's really heartwarming to see and it's the type of individuals I want to take care of myself or my parents when they age and need the services. Yeah, so I can provide a personal story in that regard. My dad uh, just passed away in September uh, at age 91, and he had uh, progressive Alzheimer's over the last mm-hmm. three years. Yeah. And so he was being taken care of at a rest home up in uh, the western Michigan area. It's called Rest Haven Homes. And um, as his mental capacity was diminishing, um, the one area of security he had was my mother, who was also 91, but medically frail. And because of their different care needs, she was, she should have been in another part of the building. But because of their concern for him, they kept them together. But they had to put an ankle bracelet on him because he was a flight risk because of his Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And the level of care they provided was amazing. So I just echo exactly what you just said as a family experience um, there, David. By the way, I was going to go back uh, to another uh, point that you made. You said most residents in nursing homes, are two-thirds of them are on Medicaid. How does that compare to the statistics of the close to 14, well, actually 10,000 extended care facilities, nursing homes that you're talking about, um, how many, is it is it equivalent? In other words, two-thirds of those also accept Medicaid, or is it some smaller percentage? No, about 95% or more of all nursing facilities in the country accept Medicaid and Medicare. And there's a lot of confusion out there between that. Um, Medicaid will pay for long-stay services in a facility. Medicare does not. What Medicare right. pays for is short-term rehabilitation after you've been in a hospital for three days. Right. And so the average stay is about three to four weeks. And many of those individuals, about two-thirds of those, go back home. So someone falls and breaks their hip at home. They've had a stroke. They go to the hospital because they had pneumonia. They get a little deconditioned. 
many of them will go to a skilled nursing rehab facility for you know a couple of weeks, get physical therapy, make sure the treatments get uh, aligned, educate the family, and then they send them home. That's about four million people a year going through nursing homes across the country. But usually that's about 20, most nursing homes are about 100 beds, so about uh, 20 of those beds are devoted to that. The other 80 beds are, you know, the longer stay, often people with dementia, like you described with your 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 dad and parents, and those are covered under Medicaid. And so by far and away, most almost all the care is covered between Medicare and Medicaid. But clearly in the transition period, people often have to pay down their assets until they qualify for Medicaid, and it's just it's a sad thing to see. Right. It's very, dis- I mean, it's already tough on families. Yes. And then it's it's further disruptive when you essentially are, are compromising their financial stability. Um, so another question I wanted to circle back on based upon that research that you were talking about from David Kaboski, what he was referring to is the connection between health and Medicaid rates, right, and the ability to support the elderly. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? I'm sure we'll have some follow-up questions, but I think that's a, an interesting point for the listeners. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, anyone understands that if you don't have adequate resources, enough staff and enough equipment and everything else to provide the care, you're going to have struggle. Right. And what we've seen is the acuity and complexity of individuals has increased in nursing facilities across the country. Um, but at the same time, most of them being reimbursed by the state Medicaid programs, which, you know, every state's budget is under fiscal uh, challenges, so they've often constrained um, that, and so there's a mismatch there. Now, that said, and I think just to tie it back to the Baldridge, I mean, even if you have adequate resources, it doesn't mean guarantee that you're going to have great outcomes, and, right. you know, we've seen that, and I think one of the distinguishing characteristics we see with the members who are pursuing this Baldrige framework, they outperform, and they actually tend to end up doing financially better because they tend to be more efficient. Uh, they have less turnover. There's a cost to that. Um, they figure out better ways to provide care that's meaningful and effective and get rid of the care that's not as meaningful and not effective. And so uh, even in some states where their uh, Medicaid rates are very, very low and often inadequate, those who pursue this journey do better and can figure out how to do it. So I think it's not always a one-to-one either way, but uh, this is why we really are championing the uh, within our organization uh, Baldrige framework amongst members to adopt it because we think it's a path to work through all these systems out there. That said, you still need the adequate resources. You can't totally compensate for that, and I think that's the work that Dr. Grouse has shown that uh, as a broad policy you need to make sure you adequately fund the care for the elderly in this country. Right. And so let's bring this up a level to the overall healthcare dialogue that listeners are hearing about on the news all the time, which is, uh, uh, you know, increasing costs year over year, uh, the need mm-hmm. to drive those costs down, moving to value-based risk plans, et cetera. So does that same principle uh apply, Dr. Gifford, that what you've experienced in the post-acute extended care uh, environment by focusing on quality and therefore, sorry, fo- yeah, focusing on quality and thereby driving efficiency and better financial performance actually, if applied universally across all healthcare delivery, can have a similar effect? Absolutely. I mean, the, the payment models and systems out there right now um, just don't make sense. 
and are not helpful, I think, for the elderly, whether they're in long-term care or in the community or not. It's very fragmented. Um, the payment it doesn't drive coordination between healthcare providers, and it doesn't always incentivize better quality. It just incentivizes doing more. And while many people think more in healthcare is better, one thing I've seen amongst my patients, particularly elderly, who are very you know frail and have a lot of complications, more is not always better. Right. Uh, more medication it tends to make them more confused. Mm-hmm. Going to the hospital, which is very costly, people think you know if they're sick they should go to the hospital. We're finding out that that's really contributing to a lot of problems out there. So these payment models that tend to align preventing people from going to the hospital and meeting the individual's needs uh, do much better. And we've been very supportive of the shift towards that, but it just has been slow in coming. I'll give you one quick example. You know, as I said before, Medicaid pays for long-stay care. Medicare pays for short-stay. You would think that states in the Medicaid would care about rehospitalizations and trying to, you know, pay and prevent them in the Medicaid program. But if a resident who's under Medicaid goes to the hospital, while they're in the hospital, Medicaid doesn't have to pay the nursing home. Medicare pays for the hospital stay. When they come back to the nursing facility, Medicare pays for a couple of weeks there. And so it actually saves the state money to have people go to the hospital. So you don't see any, it's not that it's a conscious decision, but there's no incentive for the state to develop a program in Medicaid to prevent people from going to the hospital because there's no financial savings. So a lot of issues are always driven around savings. So the problem is the savings of going to the hospital are accrued by lowering Medicare costs, but Medicare isn't paying for the long stay, so they don't have any say over it. So you've got this complete disconnect, which just doesn't make sense. Right. So, Lisa, you've been a nurse uh, for a long time. Thanks. Uh, Thanks, Ben. And I'm sure... You didn't say long, long long time, time. at least. Yeah, (laughs) and you've seen a lot of this, so so weigh in on this as you're listening. Well, I mean, clearly, we want to keep people out of the hospital, and it's shocking to me that we haven't caught up in our reimbursement systems to really accommodate that. So, I mean, again, I I just implore us as, you know, consumers of health care and as our parents age that we really have to get involved from a legislative perspective and we really have to help Dr. Gifford and others out there to really try to promote um, you know this inc- appropriate incentiveness for for delivery of care and for payment so um, yeah I, I mean again I was a critical care nurse and the last place you want to be is in the hospital so for us not to be paying accordingly and really trying to work on creative programs which I loved Dr. Gifford, you talking about um, how the Baldridge really does promote, um, you know, organizations to think outside of the box. I would love to talk about that more, yeah. Yeah, in our deep dive, I definitely want to get into that. I don't want the readers to feel like nothing's moving. I mean, I think things are moving in the right direction. We have a number of states that are um, in the Medicaid programs that are starting to link um, their payments to quality and and rehospitalization rates for the all the reasons you said, Lisa. And we actually have, uh, there are uh, three states out there right now, Florida, Tennessee, and Utah, that actually link some of the Medicaid payments to nursing facilities, for, uh, increases it for those who are pursuing the Baldridge framework and receiving the Baldridge that's recognition, great. because they know that's going to help the 
residents overall and lower costs. And so I think there are some innovative states pushing that out there. And it's great to see. We need more of it. That's awesome. So for the listeners, uh, next week we will um, be doing our deep dive session, and uh, Dr. Gifford will be joining us for that. And um, there are a number of topics that came up that we're going to want to tackle. One of them is innovation, which is what we were just closing with. So, you know, how can organizations think outside the box and, and do things differently and more effectively? Uh, the second uh, topic that was interesting that uh, I think listeners will want to hear more about is the payment model collisions and the fact that it's not well coordinated. Uh, and then uh, at the core, the quality focus, Dr. Gifford, that you talked about, and how organizations that focus on that and, and use the Baldrige framework can figure it out even in less resource-rich environments, how to provide better and more effective care. And then the fourth one was what we talked about with leadership, that it's not just about you get promoted because you solve problems, but when you're a leader, you're actually teaching others to teaching solve others, problems. Teaching others, which goes to the last item, number five, which is the empowerment of the workforce. So those are a lot of topics to surface, but I think very, very relevant. Uh, if you agree, Dr. Gifford, from, from today's session, and maybe we can tackle those then in our next week's show. Does that sound reasonable? Oh, oh I'd be excited to. That would be a lot of, sounds like a lot of fun. All right. right. Well, we'll see you in one week. And thank you to our listeners for joining us yet again on Leader Dialogue brought to you by SOAR Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation. Remember, you can listen to a new live show every Friday at one o'clock Eastern time. You can visit Business Radio X, click on Gwinnett Studio and select Leader Dialogue. Or you can also go on to leaderdialogue.com slash podcast. On behalf of Ben, Lisa and our producer, Mike, I'm Duffy Dixon. Join us next time on Leader Dialogue here on Business Radio X. 